Well, good afternoon. Uh, today is my wedding anniversary. So I ought to begin by saying thank you to my wife for putting up with me for 23 years. 23 years. It's, that's a long time, isn't it, to put up with someone. And uh, Jane deserves great credit for that. Um, it's also been a very busy weekend this weekend. Yesterday we were in Birmingham. We Was that a round of applause for Jane? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Julian. Um, yesterday we were in Birmingham. Um, we were invited to the 25th anniversary of a church that we were part of when we were students. When we went to Birmingham, uh, well, I went first, Jane came the following year. Um, the church had only just started. And what a joy it was yesterday to go. Some of the people there we hadn't seen for 20 years. The church that back then was meeting in the women's hospital the crash and the Sunday school in a corridor and uh, 25 years later we went to their new church building um, with an extension that they'd had built and the number of people that were there and seeing faces old friends uh, the funny thing as well is our kids have got friends on camps that they go on and didn't realise that their parents were friends with us so that was quite a revelation for them to go there and see that there's kids there who Wow, do you know so-and-so's mum and dad? Yeah, we were in the same church as them 20 years ago. And then today, as some of you know, we've taken uh, Ben to Durham University and dropped him off uh, safe and sound. Um, and here we are in church um, to begin our series in Ephesians. I've called this series Captivated. I think I feel a little bit decimated after all of that. So uh, I hope that we'll be able to... Um, yeah, put the energy into it that the title deserves, but uh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> Amen. So, um, Ephesians um, is an amazing book. Um, it, its influence has been profound in history. I was reading one uh, Bible commentator this week who made this claim. He, he says that the letter to the Ephesians is one of the most significant documents ever written. Which is, a, which is a phenomenal thing to say, isn't it? Not just the most significant Bible document, but one of the most significant documents ever written. It has influenced the Christian church over the last 2,000 years. It has influenced the lives of countless numbers of Christian believers. Um, you'll see that I've given you a little handout here with some background stuff on so that we don't get too bogged down with the background. Um, I'd encourage you to have a little look at that. Uh, maybe afterwards it's something you can keep in your Bible. One of the things I would encourage you to do, it refers there to um, the fact that the Apostle Paul who wrote Ephesians visited Ephesus um, at least two or three times, if not more than that. He spent more than a couple of years there on one occasion. And you can read all about that in the book of Acts. Um, in chapter 18, mainly into chapter 19 as well. So I would encourage you, maybe during this week, if you read Acts chapter 19 particularly, it will give you a good sense of what Ephesus was like as a place. And, uh, and, and obviously Paul, maybe five years later, is, is writing this letter. The interesting thing as well is that Paul is writing this letter from prison, um, probably in Rome. So, the title Captivated is quite an interesting one. Paul was captive, and he's writing to captivate uh, his readers. 
in, the, in this great city of Ephesus. So I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down in the background, so I'll leave you to read that and, and you can have a think about that. What I want to try and do today is give you some rationale for why we're going to study the book of Ephesians together and maybe a little bit of a feel of where we're going to go with it. There are, there are a couple of big themes pastorally that have been very much on my heart. Pastors, ministers of churches do worry about things and uh, we, we worry about people. We, we worry about things that are going on in the world. There are many things we're thankful for as well. But there are often things that cause us concern. And there are two things in particular that I wanted to just touch on um, that, 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 I, that I worry about. So I'm, I'm just sharing my heart. What One is, I think, generally in our culture, is a sense of what I want to call collapsing confidence. Um, and, the, and the other is... Uh, confusion really about what the Christian gospel actually is I think those two things are probably linked collapsing confidence the the first this this first one is shown by the fact that I I think pastorally when I talk to people a lot of the questions that I'm asked are to do with assurance Um, doubts in a way and in the end the question often comes down to how can I know God how can I be sure that I'm a Christian and that that question how can I be sure is is not necessarily just a problem for Christian believers either I think in our wider culture there is a real crisis of confidence Um, I, I think it's fair to say that people nowadays believe that everything is true which actually means that in the end nothing is absolutely true. We live in what, what theologians would call a very relativistic culture and I think Christians feel this very keenly. Often people say to me, if I believe in Jesus, it feels like I'm condemning other people to be wrong and that kind of feels a very uncharitable, unloving thing to do. That is a very new phenomena and it's to do with the relativistic culture that we live in. A crisis of confidence. Many people ask, should I trust my feelings? Or can I trust my own logic? Rationale. Should I just believe what most people believe? What matters most? Whether something is true or whether it just feels right? What's more important? Whether it's true or whether it feels right? Um, actually is there any ultimate truth or are we just meant to work out our own truth and not offend anybody by trying to claim that we've found ultimate truth I think you all know uh, those kind of things this whole area of how we can know things is really important I think our culture's understanding of how we can know things is changing and often it feels like any objective basis for us to know anything at all is kind of collapsing into the sea people end up in sort of philosophical cul-de-sacs that they can't get out of very unhappy and we shouldn't be surprised that as Christian people we can often be very tired of struggling with this very thing Does does that resonate with you? maybe it does, it certainly resonates 
for me and it resonates in many of the pastoral conversations that, that I have. The second issue is, is more about confusion about the gospel itself. This is something that we touched on in, in Graham's excellent baptism service last week. How, how exciting was that to uh, enjoy that? Um, it, it was really great. Um, but we, we touched on this last week. We, we have this sense, don't we, many of us, of being part of a society that is losing its way. Um, for all our great achievements in many areas, for all the technology that we have, the, the improvements in healthcare and all the rest of it, for all the great achievements, we feel in such a mess. And the question that is often on our hearts, if, if we take time to think about it at all, is what is the solution to the problems that we face in our society? Who has the answer? Um, so many things seem to be said and claimed and done and tried. Everybody seems to have an opinion. But maybe the brokenness that we see all around us often we find very overwhelming. Uh, one Bible commentator, William Hendrickson, calls this um, perversity and pessimism. What, what he means by that is the world has gone wrong and none of us seem to know what to do about it. Perversity and pessimism. It's not a very happy state to be in, is it? And, and I think even churches seem confused about what to do. And churches seem to feel confused about what the gospel actually is. So if there's a crisis of confusion there, uh, of confidence there, and the confusion about the gospel, then we're, we're in, we're, that's, that's a pretty miserable picture to paint, isn't it? I, I, I believe that Ephesians speaks very powerfully into these issues. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, in this letter, Paul tells us very plainly what the gospel is without messing around. Um, Paul gives us God's accurate diagnosis of the human condition. And he tells us the glorious things that God has done and is doing to put right what has gone wrong. Ephesians, in some ways, is like Paul being a master doctor who is giving his diagnosis and then saying what the cure is. Um, he gets right down to the very heart of the issue. Some of what Paul says isn't popular. But it is effective because this is God's word coming to us through Paul, giving us the answer to human heart problems. But I think Ephesians also speaks very powerfully about knowledge, about truth, and about love. Ephesians emphasizes authenticity as opposed to sham. It gives us solid wisdom rather than pretense. It gives us a glorious vision of a gospel that comes to us from outside of ourselves and that is for all people, not just for individual people. Ephesians is ultimately a document that will inspire confidence in God rather than uncertainty. We need an accurate diagnosis to truly know who we are and we surely need to have confidence in God to understand what he has done for us to put our brokenness right. So I've entitled this series Captivated. Um, 
I think it resonates with where we are. In, in, in a dictionary, the word captivated, um, is, well, in one dictionary I looked up, it says this, to be captivated is to be attracted and held by charm, beauty or excellence. We need to be captivated by the charm, the beauty, the excellence of the gospel. Actually, to be captivated by Christ himself. Our aim as we go through this, I've no idea how long it will take. Our our plan is to do the first half of the book in the run-up to Christmas and then the second half of the book between Christmas and Easter. If we're still going through it by this time next year, then we'll have been really captivated by it, won't we? So we'll, we'll see. That's our plan. We'll see how long it takes. Our, our aim is that we would be captivated by Christ rather than confused or uncertain or even paralysed. And if, if you're not a Christian, I hope that you'll see for the first time what the living God has really done for you in Christ. If you are a Christian, maybe you're struggling, maybe your faith burns low. I hope that this book will encourage you and be an inspiring call to live a confident and a holy life. All that said though, my challenge today is to show you that this is not just my own idea. Because that would be terrible, wouldn't it? To come to the Bible and put my agenda all over Ephesians and make agenda mean what we want it to mean. So my challenge today really is that I want to show you that I think this is what Paul wants for his readers too. And I think ultimately this is what God wants for all people everywhere. Um, and I, and so we're talking about relevance here. If, if these are our problems and this is what Paul's aiming at, then Ephesians is incredibly relevant, isn't it? So when we come to a new book, like this, uh, our question should always be, what is it for? What what is the big picture? Why does Paul bother even to put pen to paper? And I suppose as I've been preparing this and thinking about these chapters over the last few weeks, I've become convinced that Paul is writing here with the intention that his readers would be captivated by the gospel and I, I just, I've only got three points this, this afternoon. I, I, I'm convinced of that for three reasons. First of all, it's what he prays for them. He prays that they would be captivated. And I think that gives us a good clue as to why he's writing. If he's praying one thing and writing for a different reason, that would be odd. So his prayers are a big clue. The second reason is that I think he writes in a style that is designed to captivate them. That's important. And thirdly, I think the content that he chooses to write about is also designed to be compelling and captivating. Does that make sense? So that's my little thesis for today as we open up Ephesians. Paul is writing to captivate his readers. He prays that for them. He writes in in a style that is designed to achieve that and his content is designed to achieve that. So we'll try and unpick those three things. Um, th- this book in the Bible is a letter um, you will uh, know I'm sure that the New Testament is made up largely of letters we've got four Gospels 
the book of Acts and many of the other books in the New Testament are letters when, when you see a letter and you only see one side of it you have to have a little guess at what the you know why the letter's being written you have to deduce it and often in the letter in the New Testament you can tell that Paul or Peter or John are writing to deal with particular problems you know that because of the way they write they're addressing certain issues Ephesians though is a little bit unusual because there is very little evidence in this letter of any specific problems in the church at Ephesus it's just not that kind of letter in, in this case Paul is not writing primarily to correct them I think he's writing primarily to inspire them. So you won't really find much evidence of problems here. What you will find is Paul setting out the gospel in a way that will capture their imagination. Um, so let me let me give you some evidence to, to kind of back that up. So first of all, um, if this works, Paul prays that his readers would be captivated. Um, in, in this letter, Paul tells his readers what he's praying for them twice. Once in chapter 1, which Graham helpfully read for us, and there's another prayer in chapter 3. So I just want to take a few minutes to uh, show you these. First of all, the first prayer is in chapter 1. And I'm thinking about verses 15 down to 19 let me just read it again Paul says for this reason ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers and here, here's the prayer I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Here is something of a pastor's heart for his for the people in this church isn't it he's praying for them I want you to notice that um, his prayer is first, first of all Trinitarian did you notice that I keep asking verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit he prays to the Father of Jesus, the Son, that God the Father might give them the Holy Spirit to be at work in their hearts. Uh, secondly, I want you to notice here that Paul believes in what we might call supernatural revelation. He prays for them that God's Spirit would so work in their heart that they would know God's wisdom, that they would know something of revelation. This is really crucial in Ephesians. God coming to them by his spirit to open things up for them. To, to reveal his truth to them. 
Did you notice too that Paul longs for this so that they might know God better? Um, James Montgomery Boyce uh, wrote a commentary on Ephesians. I, I know that because Ian bought it for Denise and I was reading it this week before she got it. <laughs> so it's a great book. I hope you enjoy it. James Montgomery Boyce was asked a question on a question panel. So he's like the, you know, the big authority on the stage. All the audience are there. And the question comes in. And the question was, for the men on the panel, what is the greatest need of the Christian church in the 21st century? So all these great minds, theologians, pastors, ministers, authors, writers, Bible commentary makers, they're all scratching their heads. James Montgomery Boyce said the greatest need of the church in the 21st century is that Christian believers would know God better. What a great answer that is. That Christian believers would know God better. That's exactly what Paul prays right here for them in Ephesus. And James Montgomery Boyce there and Paul here are not just talking about knowing about God as if, you know, like knowing the Queen. You know, we know the Queen because we see a picture on TV. They're both talking here about knowing God in relationship, in daily experience. And I think James Montgomery Boyce was right to be captivated by such an awareness of God is surely our greatest need. Paul writes here that they would know God better, that God's spirit would so work in their heart that they would know God personally in better ways. But Paul hasn't finished. Look with me at verse 18. He prays too here that the eyes of their heart might be Enlightened. I, I think we could make a case for this being a key verse in the whole book. This is, this is the verse that made me call this series Captivated. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I do love that phrase, the eyes of their hearts. He's really talking about their inward personalities and characters. To... to to the ancient mind, the heart is like the seat, isn't it, of the emotions, the intellect, the will. I pray that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Whatever this phrase means, it surely means much more than just logic, doesn't it? Paul isn't just appealing to their rationale here. This is about perception even imagination this is about people in the very core in the depths of their beings the eyes of their heart being open enlightened Paul prays here for light he prays that God's light would dawn deep down in their very hearts later on in chapter 4 Paul speaks about unbelievers chapter 4 and verse 17 He he says, um, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. 
and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Do you see the difference? Paul said, I don't want that for you. This isn't you. I don't want you to be darkened in your hearts, hardened, ignorant, separated from God. What I want is for you to be enlightened in your hearts. And Paul goes on, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. God, I pray that they will know who you are. I pray that these people would get a perspective on who they are. Help them to realise what they have in Christ. Help them to be captivated by it. Open their eyes to see things clearly. May their imagination be captured. May they be captivated by God, by Christ, by the Gospel. May they know in their experience the hope that they have, the power that is theirs. Can you see what Paul's doing? This is not dry, just logical. There is logic here but he's wanting them to be captivated. Just um, go with me too to the second prayer. So this now is in chapter 3 and verse 14. Chapter 3 and verse 14. So don't forget, my, my thesis here is that Paul is writing to captivate them and we know that because of what he prays for them. We've seen it in this first prayer. Here's another prayer. Verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably be more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is he praying there for them to be captivated? It sounds like it to me. Did you notice again how Trinitarian it was? I kneel before the Father. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he is no poor, mean, stingy Father. Glorious riches. He may strengthen you with power through his Spirit. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. Trinitarian, the Father, Son and Spirit all working together. Notice the emphasis on strengthening and power. I pray that he would strengthen you with power. Where? In your inner being. But this isn't a power to do supernatural stuff. <laughs> Paul isn't talking about them being superheroes with superpowers. I pray that God's Spirit would strengthen you with power in your inner being. Why? So that Christ 
may dwell in your hearts by faith. Did you realise how hard it is in this broken, fallen world for Christ to dwell in a sinner's heart? That is a miracle of God's grace, isn't it? Every muscle and sinew of the Godhead working so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. This is something that comes to us from outside of us. What a wonderful thing for Paul to pray. And look again at verse 18. Paul prays that they may have power together with all the saints. That doesn't mean like, you know, St. Peter, St. Paul. That This word saint has, has been hijacked to talk about, you know, supposedly really good people in the past. In the Bible, the word saint means Christian people. You are saints. That's what Paul's saying here. I pray that you may have power together with all the other Christians to grasp something. I I find this really interesting because I'm pretty sure there's only three dimensions that we know. You know, when you go to Ikea and you get a piece of furniture, they measure it in that way, that way, and that way, don't they? But this, this has got four it's wide and long and high and deep. What, which dimension is that? This is like four-dimensional love. It's not just got an X, Y, Z. It's got something else going on as well. <laughs> Paul says, you need power in order to grasp the indescribable bigness of the love of Christ. This is a love that surpasses knowledge. You can know it, but you can't actually categorise it or pigeonhole it or measure it. And Paul says, when, when you grasp the love of Christ, you, you will be filled to the measure, filled to the brim. When our kids were little, they used to say, filled to the blim. Filled to the blim. To be filled to the blim. With all the fullness of God. What is that? To be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He wants them to be captivated. And then after praying all of that, he says, and this is the God who can do even more than we ask for or even imagine. And I think what he asked for is pretty big, don't you? Paul is praying that they would be compelled, captivated. His desire here is that they would know God better, that they would grasp the love of Christ better, that they would know the hope and the power that are theirs by God's grace. My suggestion is, if this is what Paul's praying for, is this not why he's writing? Is that a fair connection to make? If this is what he prays for them, is this not what the whole letter is designed to achieve? Let let me ask you, then, and I, I've been asking myself this question, what is it that captivates us? What, what is it that excites us and stirs our hearts? 
we were thinking last week about the Father's wow, the glorious Son, the magnificent Son. What is it that makes you in your heart say wow? What is it that grips you? What is it? What, what, what do you dwell on in your heart and mind when you're on your own? What does your mind run to when all the busyness kind of subsides, if, if it ever does for some of you? When the busyness kind of fades, what is it that your mind runs to? Paul longs here for them to grasp something of their true identity in Christ. I, a lot of the time we're living in our lives, aren't we, with if only. My life will be complete if only, if only, if only. The way Paul prays here, we, we have everything we need in Christ. If only we would know it. Paul says, I want God's spirit to be so at work in their hearts that they would grasp these things. So first of all, I think Paul is writing to captivate them with Christ and with the gospel because that is what he prays for. Uh, secondly, I want to suggest to you that Paul writes in a style that is captivating. Is this important? I think it's really important. Um, yeah, we, we live in a very interesting culture, don't we? So let, let me um, try and open this up. I, I've no idea if this is going to bomb. So if, if it does, then we'll have another go next week. But th this really stirs my own heart. So, so I, hope, I hope you get it if you don't maybe I'm missing the mark I'll have to go back to drawing board um, how many sub points have I got here three I think Paul writes the style that is captivating because he appeals to both their heads and their hearts that's really important Graham read to us chapter one um, this is the language of celebration. This is the language of worship. I, I didn't know this until I started looking at commentaries, but from verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence in the original Greek. Imagine reading all of that without taking a breath. It begins with praise. It ends with praise. One sentence. It's like Paul's pen's melting as he's kind of just spewing out celebration of God's goodness this is the language of worship it is eloquent and passionate this is not a boring essay this is not dry as dust theology his whole heart is engaged here and he appeals to their heads and their hearts I've always enjoyed, some of you know this, I've always enjoyed reading a particular Bible commentator um, called Ben Witherington. His full name is Ben Witherington III. So I don't know if there were two others before him, but he's Ben Witherington III. One of the things that Ben Witherington is well known for is studying the way language is used, particularly in the time when the New Testament was written. So he has made it his life's work, in a way, to study how the Greeks used language in different contexts. Um, how did people use language to persuade, or to praise, or to criticise, or to describe something, or whatever. 
So he's made it his life's work to study Greek use of language and then he's brought that to New Testament to see whether he can shed light on how the different New Testament writers uh, write. I ju- I, this, just the other day I went back to my notes um, on, from Witherington so let me just read to you some extracts these, these are just from my notes on things that Witherington says so I'll just read this paragraph for what it is Witherington says it is entirely believable that in Ephesians Paul is striving to speak of Christ and the church in the same sort of laudatory and effusive terms that people would use for the emperor this is the language of ceremony and commemoration it is designed to celebrate what is already true or exists in an attempt to stir up an attitude of awe, respect even wonder in the listener it involves effusive language this kind of language is more about testimony and appreciation than argumentation and proofs it is highly emotional and seeks to charm the reader it is also not the place to dwell on problems this language tends to present the ideal so that people can be inspired to live it do you get all that? That, that, they're just extract when I read that again it makes me think of the guy who makes the announcements on X Factor. I don't know if you've seen X Factor, but you know when they they have some guy who sits up here somewhere, you never see his face, and some pop star comes onto the stage, and you hear this voice going, and now, and and the the guy kind of very effusively announces, this, you know, 12 platinum albums, and and the person comes on the stage, they really bigged it all up. Uh, the way Witherington writes about Paul, this is how I imagine this chapter 1 sounding to the people who first heard it. When this is read out in church, I imagine the guy standing up and saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Do you, do you get the idea? This is effusive language. This, there is energy and heart and passion here. Read Ephesians again in the voice of the X Factor guy and I think that it will resonate for you. And and there's other passages in Ephesians where Paul is almost losing it. It, It's not that it's illogical or irrational. He, He has a brilliant mind. All of it is beautifully rational but it isn't only rational. It is both rational and full of heartfelt energy. What what I'm trying to get across is that Paul's style is designed deliberately to evoke some emotion. He uses powerful adjectives and strong language. For Paul, things are often glorious and incomparable. We've only read a few extracts of Ephesians and already I think we've read the word glorious half a dozen times. He doesn't just talk about God's power, but it's God's incomparably great power. In chapter 1, Paul speaks of cosmic unity. He speaks of explosive power. In chapter 2, he speaks about barriers being ripped down. In chapter 3, he speaks about mysteries being revealed. He's painting vibrant word pictures. Lots of different metaphors to get his point across. He uses many contrasts things being new rather than old 
things being light rather than darkness, people going forwards rather than backwards, people being together rather than apart. He's appealing to their heads and their hearts. He is trying to captivate his readers with both truth and feeling. I, I can't tell you how much this matters. This, this really, really matters. Let, let me... I might, I might just go a little bit off piste here. So I'll have to just watch the clock. But let me put it this way. What's more important, the product or the packaging? What is more important, the product or the packaging? The product. Okay. I I think, and obviously this is partly my job as well in a product design business, maybe a hundred years ago if you bought something, it would come in a cardboard box. Things still do come in a cardboard box. But now, it is probably more likely that if you buy something the packaging has to be as good as the thing itself certainly true if you go to the apple shop the packet I don't, I don't want to throw the packaging away when I go there it's useless but it's so nice it's almost like as good as the product in fact in our modern culture sometimes the quality of the packaging actually hides the poor quality of the product I'm not criticising apple when I say that but Sometimes the, the, the packaging is, is designed to deceive us into thinking, man, if the packaging's that good, the product must be great, and then we get it open, open the box, and it doesn't work, or it's not what we thought it was. Clearly, the product is the thing we buy, but we, we live in a very interesting culture, don't we? We have some big issues, I think, in our churches. We have been led to believe that what really counts is logic, rationality, proofs, and evidence. All of this is really important. But if there is no heart, we're not being truly human. Let me ask this question another way. Do you think what God does is more important than how he does it? It's a slightly different question. What's more important, what God does or how he does it? What would you say to that? That's a tough piece of homework, isn't it? Well, we know that what God does is very, very important, but it, does it matter how he's done it? Do you know, I think sometimes we're so focused on the content that we fail to notice the glory of the packaging. God speaks truth into our world, but do you know how he's packaged that? He didn't just write it in the sky or send us an essay, did he? God has very carefully and painstakingly packaged his truth in the very narrative of human history. He has given us his laws but enshrined them in the experience of a nation. 
his precious people of Israel. But even more glorious than that, did you ever think about this? He has given us his salvation and he has packaged that in a human life. God has given us truth and it comes to us in human flesh. Not in an essay or some dry words in an ancient document. God has given us a product, if you like, and the packaging is as glorious as the product. This is really important for our modern culture. God has not given us an essay. He has given us, he has given us words, but he has given us so much more than that. He has given us his son, who is a living, breathing reality. The product is amazing. The packaging, though, takes your breath away. My point is that for far too long we have been all head and no heart. We've forgotten that we have hearts as well as brains. We need truth. We need life. We need love. For far too often we've used the Bible to derive truth statements to decide who's in and who's out. Instead of experiencing the life of God's Spirit, the power of God's Spirit at work in our hearts. Paul writes in a style that is designed to captivate his readers. Can I just apply this to, to our church here too? If we, if we get this wrong, we, we will fail to be relevant to our culture. If our preaching is logical, but not heartwarming, it will be dry, and it will not appeal to the deep yearnings of our hearts the hearts of people in our culture. But on the other hand, if our preaching is only emotional and not anchored to God's truth, then it will not have any objective basis in reality, will it? What we need is God's word and God's spirit. What we need is God's word and his living power. Well, I wasn't sure whether that was going to bomb. Maybe it did. But Paul writes here in order to captivate. He writes to win their hearts and minds. And surely that must be our aim. We need to just rattle on here, don't we? The second reason why I think Paul's writing to captivate them is because he calls them out of themselves. Um, let, let me move on Witherington claims that this kind of language doesn't dwell on problems but presents ideals that is very true in Ephesians Paul isn't here dealing with people problems he, he is presenting ideals Paul kind of gives them an upward vision I, I'm sure there were problems in this church difficulties like there would be anywhere 
But in this letter, he doesn't set out to get into the detail of individual problems. He sets out to captivate their vision. Often, I think, we do start with our problems, don't we? Sometimes it is good for us sometimes to stop thinking about ourselves just for a minute and to look away and out of ourselves to big, solid, compelling, captivating truths. The Christian gospel is not what we might call narcissistic. It is not self-regarding. The point of the gospel is to lift us out of ourselves and give us something and someone to believe in, to enjoy and to worship. I think this affects our philosophy of worship. We're, we're not really coming to church in a way as consumers to be entertained or to have our problems solved. When we come to church, what we're really coming to do is to marvel at God. Our aim is to look to him and be satisfied. Problems do need to be dealt with. Detail is important. But maybe there's a challenge here for some of us as to where our focus is. We have a great book on ourselves upstairs in the office entitled, When People Are Big and God is small. Some of, often that's how we live, isn't it? When people are big, and God is small. I think what Paul's writing to do here is to change that whole paradigm. In this letter, people are small, and God is massive. Can we say that? He's trying to change that paradigm. He wants them to look out and upward and be called out of themselves. Let me, it's only a suggestion at this point, but maybe a clearer sight of God and a firmer grasp of Christ's love would actually cause some of the things that we worry about to be seen in a better perspective. Maybe we would be healthier for that. So Paul writes to captivate them for that reason too. One, one final thing we have to be quicker. The third thing is that Paul roots behaviour in the realm of faith and desires. What did I put there? Behaviour and desires. What, what do you do when you want to improve someone's behaviour? I mean, you could threaten them. You know, I'll kill you if you don't do that. Or you could bribe them. Oh, please do it. I'll do this for you if you do that. Paul, what's Paul's philosophy of ministry here? It is to focus on inward desires rather than external behaviours. He knows that in the end that what counts is their hearts. And so I want to say to you, if Ephesians is a very interesting book because the first three chapters are all about theology. The second three chapters that we'll deal with all being well after Christmas are all about practical living. And Paul connects those two things because what you believe affects how you live. But he appeals to, he doesn't moralise them, but he appeals to them on the basis of desire. 
not in the language of control. Um, Paul wants them to be captivated by the gospel, by Christ, and also to be captivated by a kind of code of ethics that flow naturally out of those truths. So you, we, we don't have time to dwell on it now, but in chapter 4 and verse 1, so this is the beginning of the practical part. For three chapters he's been talking about theology, he's been captivating them with this vision of God and Christ and the gospel. And then he says in chapter 4 verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord then, that little word then could easily be therefore, so it links to everything that's gone before, in the light of everything I've said, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What he's saying is, this is so good, this is how you should live. He's not trying to beat them up or control them or manipulate them. He's trying to captivate them. He appeals to their hearts. In chapter 5, the same. Chapter 5 and, um, well, the, the last bit of uh, chapter 4, verse 32. Paul says to them, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Why? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. He doesn't picture God as like a someone with a clipboard in the sky, keeping a tally of the things you've done and not done. He pictures God as a loving father. And he says to these people in this church, you know what, he's amazing. Why don't you be like him? This is the language of desire. This is the heart. Imitate him as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The point I'm making is that he roots ethics and behaviour in the gospel. It is something that is going on in their heart. You can change your external behaviour. What Paul's aiming at is to captivate their hearts. And that is an entirely different thing. He provides, as we'll see, a compelling vision of church, marriage, family life, parenting, work in a hostile culture. All of these practicalities are grounded in a captivating vision of Christ. Paul's whole approach here is, this is who you are in Christ. Go and live it. Be it. Be who you now are in Christ. He never once urges them to earn it. He tells them that they can't earn it. But that God graciously gives them salvation. On the back of what God has given to them, he tells them to go and be who they are. Forget your old dark life and be the new person that Christ has created you to be. Okay. Oh, well, I think uh, you might have got the idea now that Paul's writing that they might be captivated by the gospel. Have you got that? <laughs> um, head and heart together. Belief and behaviour together. My final very quick point is that this is all grounded in solid content. Did you notice that when we looked at those prayers that Paul prayed, that he began both of them the same way? In chapter 1 and verse 15, he prays, but he begins by saying, for this reason, 
ever since I heard about it, I pray. Chapter 3, verse 14, he begins exactly the same way. He says a whole load of stuff in chapter 3 and then says, for this reason. So, what Paul is doing is basing his praying in things that he knows are true. He gives them a whole load of truth and then says, for this reason I'm praying these things for you. His prayers are not, they're not random prayers. All of it is grounded in solid content. Time has gone really, we'll get into all of this, God willing, over the next few weeks. Ephesians is about the amazing salvation that God has given to us in Christ. In chapter 2, Paul talks about us being dead in our sins and God making us alive in Christ. In chapter 1, there's another key verse in chapter 1, verse 10, just the end of verse 10. The cosmic unity that God is aiming at um, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Sometimes when I think about the world, it reminds me of like, it's, um, you know like, I, I've done an engineering degree, I can't even remember what it's called, centrifugal force? Claire's going to help me with this. Yep. So when something spins really fast, bits fly off, that's the point I'm making. That's like the world, isn't it? Spinning so fast, things fly off all over the place. In the gospel, what God is doing is slowing that down, reversing that process and sticking things back on. He is bringing things together, bringing order out of chaos, bringing all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Reconciliation that leads to true unity. One of the striking things about Ephesus is how cosmopolitan it was. One writer says, to live in Ephesus was like living permanently at Heathrow Airport. Ephesus was a port, the port was a little bit inland, up a river. But it was a landing stage. There were people from all over Europe, in the Middle East. It was it, every nationality and ethnic group, Jews and Gentiles and everybody else. It was like living in the passenger lounge at Heathrow Airport. Maybe that's why Paul writes so much in this letter about unity. Being reconciled to God so that we can be reconciled to one another. Well, there's so many other things in this letter. These are captivating themes. And they're designed to bring salvation and confidence to human minds and hearts. This letter then is for people who don't know what to do about human problems. This letter is perhaps for those who are anxious and unsure about what they can know and whose confidence in God has kind of collapsed. Ephesians shows us how God's truth transcends human history and draws us out of those personal cul-de-sacs that we end up in. He draws us out of those to be captivated by Christ and joined to one another. I really pray as, as Paul prays that as we go through it you or that we or would indeed be captivated by Christ 
to his praise and glory. Amen.